Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The Diane Reem Show is one of the most popular programs on WITF and across the country. Some two and a half million people tune in to hear Ms. Reem's timely and thoughtful show every week. Diane announced she will retire at the end of this year and much of her time will be spent advocating on behalf of aid in dying for the terminally ill. Diane Reem became one of the faces of the Right to Die movement when her husband John, who was suffering from Parkinson's disease, died in 2014 after 10 days of not eating food or drinking fluids. Diane writes about her life without her husband and her grief in the newly published book, On My Own. Diane Reem's On My Own is WITF and Aaron's book's pick of the month for the month of March. Diane Reem, welcome to Smart Talk on WITF. Thanks, Scott. Good to be with you. Your book is unique on several levels. It's part autobiography. It's part diary of the past year and a half of your life. I can also see it as a bit of a love letter to your husband, John, but it is deeply personal. Maybe one of the most personal accounts I think I've ever read. What story did you want to tell with your book? Well, I think if you're asking me for the nugget of what I wanted to tell. It is about life and the end of life. It's about a marriage and the end of marriage. And it's certainly about death and how I believe and my husband believed that we should be able to choose to die when that time arrives, when we know we no longer wish to keep going. And we're going to talk about all those things, too. But I I have to say that uh, listeners to your show, and they can hear you every day from 10 to 12 here on WITF, when you host your show, you're in control. You're the one that sometimes have to ask those tough questions. But in the book, you show a vulnerable side that may surprise many people out there? Well, I think most of us at some part of ourselves are truly vulnerable and no more vulnerable than at the time of the death of a loved one. And in this case, of course, John and I were married for 54 years we had what I would call a tremendously successful marriage with two wonderful children. And we had the kinds of problems that an awful lot of people have but never talk about. And it seemed to me that if I were going to write this book and be totally honest about what and who we were, that I was going to put in the warts and all rather than gloss over a marriage that had lots of bumps, had many ups and downs, had periods when John didn't speak to me, I didn't speak to him, when we spent too much time disagreeing and even quarreling. 
But one thing about which we both agreed very, very strongly was the right to choose when we wanted to die. And I believe very strongly in choice in dying. And I also believe that the country is ready to hear about the whole idea of aid in dying. We've seen California uh, pass a law, which will be in effect for 10 years, and then they will re-examine it. We've seen Oregon's law carried out very successfully, in which doctors provide the necessary medications to individuals who have been diagnosed with fatal illnesses who may be within six months of dying and who want to end their lives on their terms with families surrounding them, with friends, loved ones. Nobody wants to die alone. Nobody wants to suffer the indignities of loss of all facilities. And John had reached that point. So I wanted to write about that honestly. I wanted to write about our marriage and our children. So I hope that the book doesn't shock anyone, but rather informs them and informs them honestly. John passed away on June 23rd, 2014. In the weeks before he died, uh, he didn't want to live the way that he was at the time. He was suffering from Parkinson's disease. You asked the doctor, or the two of you asked the doctor, about getting help, and the doctor said, no, there's nothing we can do in that area. So John decided that he would not eat, he would not drink fluids, and that's how he would end his life. It took 10 days. What were those 10 days like? They were excruciating, to put it mildly. Um, You know, you can live for a fairly long time without food. Uh, You can go 40, even 50 days without food. But it's the lack of water that forces the organs to shut down. During the first two days without food and water, John was not only quite well, he was cheerful. He said he felt as though he had taken his life back into his own hands. And here was a man who knew that he would soon die, but was cheerful because he knew he was not going to fall into further degradation. Scott, he could not use his hands. He could not walk. He could not feed himself. He could not bathe himself. It was sad, sad for him. And yet that first day after he had made his decision, 
I took a photograph album to assisted living where he was, a photograph album I had made of his childhood um, through his high school years. And we sat on the bed together, and we looked at those photographs, and we enjoyed looking at each image and telling each other stories, and we had a wonderful time together, even knowing that the end was close. The following day, he fell asleep, and he didn't wake up. So, you know, there were moments when I confess I wanted to put a spoonful of applesauce to his mouth or put a few drops of water in his mouth, but I knew that that would be going against what he wanted. He said, I am ready to die, and he was. Was he in any kind of pain? I hope to God he was not. His um, body showed no indications of pain. From time to time, his face would sort of grimace. Um, his uh, arms would flail, but there was no indication of pain. Uh, I think for the last few days, uh, the doctor began giving him very small doses of morphine so that if there was any pain, he certainly didn't feel it. When John passed away, when he died, when he took his last breath, did you have a sense of relief? Mind you, I was not there. I got there 20 minutes too late. I had fallen asleep the night before on two chairs next to his bed with my little dog Maxie on my stomach. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, I got up and started typing on my iPad just sort of what I was thinking, what I was feeling. And and then at about 7.30 in the morning, his caregiver came in, as he always did at that hour. And so I said, I'll run home and get a shower and feed and walk Maxie, and then I'll come back. And his caregiver called and said, Diane, come quick. I think John has just passed. And by the time I got there, indeed, he had been gone for about 20 minutes. So I certainly felt no relief at that moment. Um, what I felt was utter sadness and utter loss and a feeling of being both bereft and alone, even though my son was there with me, my little dog was there with me, 
you know, you see someone you've loved and lived with for 54 years lying motionless and breathless on the bed, relief certainly doesn't come to mind. The reason I ask that question is because I've spoken to, and even people in my own family who have lost a loved one uh, due to Alzheimer's, not necessarily uh, Parkinson's, but after a long-term illness. And I've often heard them say that it's almost a relief because, and they often say almost a relief. No one comes out and says, oh, yeah, boy, am I glad that uh, you know he or she is uh, now in a better place. But they say almost a relief because of the suffering, because of the pain, and what that loved one was going through. So that was, that was the reason I asked that question. I, I certainly understand that perspective. I think you also have to realize, however, that um, John's mind was in really quite good shape so that I hadn't lost him in that way. I knew he felt lost physically. He did not feel lost mentally. And I loved his mind. His mind was an extraordinary one. He was my teacher for so long in every way. Um, so, no, I did not feel relief until much later um, when I finally confronted the quiet and aloneness of my own dwelling. I think that's when I finally felt relief long after the memorial service, long after everyone, friends, family, had gone. I think that's when I felt the relief. When I talk to guests about end-of-life issues, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, uh, palliative care and hospice are usually the focuses of the conversation, unless the topic is specifically right to die. It isn't discussed or even considered by many in the medical community. And I know in your book you say this, and I've heard other people say it as well, that today's medical providers, today's doctors, that they don't get a lot of training in the areas of end-of-life care, end-of-life issues, and they should. That's beginning to change. There are new classes, courses being held for doctors um, to teach them about how to speak honestly with individuals who have reached that end-of-life point, that they wish to be able to talk more openly and doctors need to learn to listen more carefully. You know, there are those who would wish to have palliative care for quite a while and forever, and those who wish it should be given palliative care. On the other hand, there 
are a growing number of people, and especially with the baby boomers aging, who are saying palliative care is simply prolonging a life that has no longer meaning for me. And therefore, I am ready to move on, to take the next journey. That's how John thought of it. He was ready to move to the next journey. His own book that he wrote, a book of both poetry and prose, was titled Onward Journey. So I truly know that he felt he was going on another journey and did not wish any longer to be held in this mortal life. You became a voice for the Right to Die movement in this country. You've touched on it during our short time together today, but what is your vision and your ultimate goal? My vision, my ultimate goal is primarily for myself that when the time comes, I will be in conversation with a physician, a sympathetic physician who will hear what I have to say, that the laws will be by then ready to acknowledge that those people who feel that they are ready to move on will be given the means by which to do so. You say, I have become an advocate or a spokesperson. The Washington Post called me that. I never called myself that. It is something that happened because John died the way he did because he had asked for help in dying and because the laws of Maryland would not permit his doctor to in any way help him die. I believe that each of us deserves the right to choose um, and that those who choose to simply be kept comfortable with palliative care should be given that right, and that those of us who wish to end our lives because of loss of dignity, because we have a fatal illness which is going nowhere but down, that we too should have that right to choose. So that's my vision, and that's what I'm going to be speaking about as I go across the country. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest is Diane Ream. You can hear the Diane Ream Show every day on WITF, or at least Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. She also is the author of a new book, On My Own. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, your marriage, Diane, with your husband, John, or his nickname that you had was Scoop. Uh, How did you get that nickname, by the way? 
His father was sports editor of the Paris Herald Tribune. He and John's mother met when they lived in Paris. She was working as a runway model at the time for the couturier houses in Paris. And John's father, as I said, worked on the Paris Herald Trib. He was sports editor, and there were three other men on the sports desk at the, um, or at least on the news desk at the Trib, whose wives were pregnant. And John's mother was the only one who had a boy. And therefore, John Rain became the scoop in the newsroom. Now, that's how sexism rears its ugly head. <laughs> if it had been a girl, I'm not sure she would have been called scoop. How often did you call John scoop? Oh, my gosh. Uh, throughout... Probably he asked me to start calling him Scoop probably about 10 years into our marriage. His name, of course, John Bartram Ream. Um, he really loved the playfulness of the word Scoop, and so I called him Scoopy, um, and he loved that. You were married for 54 years, and you described your marriage earlier as tremendously successful, but you also talked about some of the ups and downs as well. What do you mean? I'm going to, this is kind of a two part question. What did you mean by a tremendously successful marriage? And then let's talk about those ups and downs. When you have a couple who are so enamored of each other who work together to support each other who believe in the same ideals who believe in caring for children as we did who enjoy each other in every way as much as we did and then who raise two absolutely gorgeous and wonderful children together as we did. I call that a successful marriage. You're referring, I presume, to the confession that John made. Yes near the end of his life when he said to me, Diane, I have a confession to make to you. I was deliberately emotionally abusive to you throughout our marriage or portions thereof. And, you know, Scott, in my heart, I knew it. It wasn't something I didn't know. I wondered why. And I asked him why he thought he had been that way. He really couldn't answer the question. 
I suspect it was in part because he had never completely and openly rebelled against his own mother, which most kids need to do somewhere along the way, recognizing that some separation is an important part of growth. Um, but he also wondered whether perhaps he would have been better off never having married at all. But then he said, but then I would never have gotten to know you or David or Jenny. So in the end, you know, I think uh, there's not a single one of us who doesn't regret some aspect of our lives, whether we're single or married, whether we've chosen one profession over another, whether we've hurt someone or not, there are regrets. And my sadness is that we wasted so much time in anger, so much precious time of that 54 years in anger. And had we been more mature, had we been two different people, had I not been more demanding, had I been a person who simply accepted John's need for aloneness better than I did, maybe it wouldn't have been so difficult. But those are all things one regrets. But that's life. Your book's title, On My Own, describes the story very well. I want to touch on a, a couple aspects of that. Uh, the book is very much about grief. How did you grieve? I worked. I came back to work a week after John's memorial service. Um, I accepted as many invitations to speak and be with friends and travel as much as I could. Um, I think like many others, I simply ran from grief um, through my work. But at the same time, even within my work, I would experience grief. I would experience those feelings of being out of touch with myself. Even while I was on the air, I might be distracted or my head might go elsewhere even while I was in conversation with people on the air. But then again, I think that's normal. You know, there are no rules for grieving. Each of us 
does it in our own way. And um, frankly, I don't think there's such a thing as closure. I don't think I will ever stop grieving for John. I think the manner of grieving will take on a different form, and he'll always be in my heart. I talk to him every day. He talks back. I spend lots of time with my little dog, and John loved that little dog. We sort of relate to each other through Maxie. Um, so, you know, as a widow, I am just as much a human being as I ever was with the same kinds of feelings, the same kinds of concerns, maybe slightly less now that I have lived through the loss of the man I loved for so many years. I wish we had more time to talk, but just a few more questions. Your show has been a major part of your life since 1979. Uh, You mentioned in the book how you will enjoy not getting up so early in the morning. But the other part of it is, (laughs) the other part of it is, what will you do after retirement? Oh, my gosh. I'm going to be doing so many things. I'll have an office here at WAMU. I will continue to be a part of the station in many different ways, all of which have not yet clearly been outlined. I'll be traveling the country speaking about the right to die. I will continue to appear in a play uh, by Trish Radenberg titled Surviving Grace, all about a woman, a vibrant woman in her mid-50s who falls into Alzheimer's. I play that woman. We perform that play here in Washington, in Los Angeles, San Diego, Indianapolis, uh, Raleigh. We'll continue to perform that play. I will be working on behalf of Alzheimer's, working on behalf of Parkinson's, working on behalf of the right to die, and staying involved here at WAMU. I think I'll be quite happily busy. I don't know if you remember this or not, but when you were here at WITF, I asked you what you would be doing if uh, you weren't hosting a talk show. You said it was the first time you were asked that, asked that question, and you said you would like to perform on stage. So now it sounds as if you're getting that opportunity. Uh, have you enjoyed that? Very, very much, and uh, I must confess, it's a reading of the play as opposed to an a performance of the play, so I don't have to memorize lines 
and can simply stand with my fellow cast members and read from a script, but it's wonderful, Scott. I really, really enjoy it. So it's one of the things I will be doing. Diane Ream, thank you very much for being on the program today. And thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Governor Tom Wolf signed an executive order yesterday raising the minimum wage for state employees under the governor's jurisdiction and contractors who deal with the state from $7.25 to $10.15 per hour. It could be the first step toward a campaign to increase the minimum wage for all workers statewide. The impact of a minimum wage is one of those issues that is often debated. But what makes the governor's move even more controversial is that it comes at a time when the state hasn't had a budget for more than eight months. Joining us on today's program is Dr. Mark Price, a labor economist with the Keystone Research Center. Mark Price, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. Also joining us is Alex Halper, who is Director of Government Affairs with the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry. Alex Hopper, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. Well, give us a call if you have a question or a comment uh, about the minimum wage issue. We're going to talk a little bit about the governor's action yesterday, but for the most part, we'll be discussing minimum wage itself and uh, whether it should be raised. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, we'll start with uh, the governor's executive order yesterday. Alex Hopper, um, your thoughts on the, uh, the governor raising the minimum wage for the workers under his jurisdiction and with uh, workers, with contractors who deal with the state? You know, we don't question or doubt the good intentions of Governor Wolf or or anyone advocating uh, to increase the minimum wage. Uh, however, we know based on history, uh, what we're hearing from uh, employers all over Pennsylvania with, with their experience, uh, as well as any number of, of studies and reports from independent uh, sources over the years that have shown when you require employers to uh, increase what are typically entry-level wages, you have some folks who benefit, but you also have some folks that have uh, some of those negative employment impacts, whether it's uh, hours are reduced or what we've seen from uh, recent studies of, uh, of jobs that are actually lost. So the, the governor yesterday, as you noted, uh, signed an executive order for state employees and for contractors. And, you know, I think there were probably employers around Pennsylvania reading that this morning thinking, um, you know, isn't that nice? Sign a paper and all these individuals w w will get a raise. Um, you know, employers thinking, wouldn't it be nice if I kind of had a magic wand and I could sign a paper and uh, increase labor costs for entry-level workers by 40 percent or, you know, 500 percent of some proposals aim to do. So, you know, I, I think it's a it's it's misguided policy. We, we have to see what the implications will be for the state and how it's going to be paid for. But in terms of broader public policy, uh, it's just not a step in the right direction. And we're going to talk about all those things you mentioned, too. But you said uh, employers across the state. But in this case, when you're talking about employees under the governor's jurisdiction, he is the employer. Well, that's right. And, and he has customers paying um, in the form of taxes, uh, really, whether they 
whether they want to pay it or not, which is a little bit different from how uh, from how it works in 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 the regular economy. Where if you're an employer and you've just been told that for your entry level workers uh, their their uh, pay has to go up forty percent, and all of the costs associated with that rate, whether it's payroll taxes or unemployment compensation taxes that are tied to that rate, uh, you know you're told that that your rates just your labor costs just went up 40%. Um, you know, money doesn't grow on trees except I guess in state government when sometimes it does, but for most employers that's not how it works. And they're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. And and something you should mention that yeah, I said the governor is the employer when we're talking about those 450 employees that would be impacted, but come this summer contractors who deal with the state uh, would have to pay their workers at least that 10-15 an hour. All right, Mark uh, Mark Price, let me go back to you, uh, your overall thoughts on the governor's action yesterday. You know, I think um, we're certainly very pleased with the governor's um, proposal. I think most importantly, I mean, as Alex talked about, you know, we're we're really talking about, you know, a few hundred workers that are going to benefit from this uh, for the state. And we don't know how quite how many workers will be impacted among the contractors. But again, it's it's likely to be quite small. So the total budgetary impact here is, you know, somewhere around four point one million dollars, which is a little less than one-tenth of one percent of the state budget. You know, every dollar counts, but nonetheless, it's we're talking about a pretty modest proposal. Where it's, I think, very valuable is because it shines, I think, a very bright light on the General Assembly, which now has had before it for more than two years bills to raise the minimum wage to uh, any number of, of levels, 875, 1010, some uh, around 12. And it's taken no action. We have none of the labor committees have have moved bills to the floor for a vote. And the reality is, we think if a bill would go to the floor, it would likely pass. And the reason it would is because the vast majority of likely voters, including the majority of likely Republican voters, support a minimum wage increase. Now, we can debate what the levels are, but the reality is that most people agree, as in 29 other states across the country, that that wages should rise um, for a broad group of workers, but certainly uh, for low-wage workers in particular. I'm not going to talk a lot about the politics of this today, because uh, even though the two of you follow state government closely, I mean, uh, Alex, your title is Government Affairs with the Pennsylvania uh, Chamber of Business and Industry, but I'm not going to talk about the the politics of this a whole lot, but I do want to ask, and Mark, let me ask you. as I said in the introduction, this is controversial because, number one, the governor did this with an executive order just because the reason you just suggested that the legislature ha- has not dealt with it. So there are a lot of people looking at this and saying, OK, you know, we're not happy with what, how Washington is going. President Obama has been criticized for signing executive orders to get action done be- when the Congress won't, won't act. Now Governor Wolf is doing the same thing. So th- that is one thing. And the other thing that I mentioned, that the state doesn't have a budget. And yet we're bringing millions of dollars, you know, in expenditures to the state with this move. No, I think it's absolutely correct. And people would like to see government function. And and really what we have seen nationally, I think, over the last few years is a lot of discord. And and that discord often translates into efforts to shut down the government, really. It's been difficult to get things done because, you know, people have taken extreme positions. And so I think um, what the governor's proposal is doing, although it, you know, as you said, it's it's ruffling some feathers in the General Assembly, I think it's ruffling them for the right reasons, um, precisely because they haven't taken action. If 
they're upset with what the governor has done, they should bring a bill to the floor and, and have a broader debate about raising the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, same question, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a, a very common strategy we've seen over the years. Uh, and again, not to question the, the intentions here, but uh, it's it's an election season. So we start talking about those issues that sort of poll well, well including uh, increasing the minimum wage. And, uh, you know, so... I think if I were advising advocates here, I would say let's at least take some kind of action to show that uh, we are we are uh, we're, we're we're doing this for our own employees. And uh, although I, I would note, and it's interesting that uh, the governor at his at his press conference yesterday noted that uh, that there are some exemptions. I think human service and human I think service, the nonprofit yeah. sector are are exempted from this That's increase. That's the contractors. That's yeah. right, for, for the contractors. Right. So, you know, I guess it's a little bit encouraging to, um, to see that there is at least a recognition that this does not always work as much as, uh, as, as well as you hoped it would, that there are simply uh, employers, whether it's nonprofits or many of the employers we talk to who don't have the capacity to expand their labor costs so dramatically, um, you know, I, so it's sort of easy to do when you're talking about nonprofits, but we think that recognition has to extend to the, to the broader employer base in, in Pennsylvania. Those contractors, uh, how will they be impacted? I'm sure that there are some of your members that, uh, that may be impacted by this, but how will those contractors be impacted? We have to see how that's going to to play out. Uh, we need to get a better understanding of of uh, to whom this is going to apply. Uh, we've already heard some concerns that that uh, you know state contracts are, I think, right now awarded. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a fairly good balance of smaller employers who can um, who can qualify and who win bids for state contracts. And you know, some of these smaller employers that may have very thin profit margins. If their entry-level wages are required to increase, uh, you know, substantially, they may not have the capacity to bid for those anymore. So, you know, as much as as I, you know, I, I firmly believe that uh, we need uh, the best bids possible being uh, submitted to the state, uh, just for the purpose of fiscal responsibility. If we're telling the employers in Pennsylvania that smaller businesses with uh, with, with smaller profit margins, um, you don't really. Uh, you're not really going to be able to bid anymore because you can't afford it. We need to go to just large employers. That's not fair to to all employers. So, uh, you know, we see all the time the the the, the rule of unintended consequences and what start as real as policies with good proposals when they play out in the real world, it doesn't always work out as well as you hope. And I think this this uh, this action is a perfect example. Mark, what about that? I mean, even if there is perception, now I I know you you come. You come prepared with a lot of statistics about what a minimum wage hike does. And so, Alex, it's one of the reasons this issue is so we, we keep talking about it all the time is because both sides have uh, some, some numbers to, to back it up. But what about what he just said? Even if that perception exists amongst those smaller would-be contractors and they don't bid, you're locking some smaller businesses out. Um, this is free market capitalism, which we all love very much. And uh, if you don't, the bid, economist says. <laughs> the economist says. Uh, and if you don't bid, that's your problem. 
Um, you know, well, if, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? it, it well, free markets are harsh. Um, we, we expect employers to come and, and seek out and chase business uh, for anything, whether it's in the public sector or in the private sector, and they certainly do. And so I think you're hearing a lot of very strange speculation about, um, you know, oh, people aren't going to bid anymore. Oh, boo-hoo. It's very difficult for us to do business. The reality Was is... Was that you, Alex? <laughs> no, look, I am uh, I'm so excited to hear Mark tout the benefits of free market uh, capitalism, and I'm, I'm I hope someone's recording the show so I can keep it for posterity. We're recording, but, it, but, yeah. but but look, if you're if you're changing the if you're changing the rules of the game and you're telling uh, bidders on state contracts, your labor costs are now increased by forty percent, and that has a, dis- a disproportionate impact. We know on smaller employers. Uh, I don't know if I view that as free market uh, capitalism. I, I think I view that as as a um, as a very serious unintended consequence for employers, many of whom, uh, you know, may be struggling. We know a lot of smaller businesses in particular are still kind of making their way out of uh, the difficult recession. A state contract might be keeping their head above water. And now we're saying, well, let's sign a, let's sign a paper. And now you're in really tough shape. Mark, I just saw you kind of look at the ceiling when uh, Alex said that. <laughs> See, I, 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 folks, I can tell this behind the scenes. They both told me we like each other, and uh, so this will be fun sitting down and having this conversation. And we enjoy the civility of it. But absolutely, Mark, absolutely. Go ahead. I, uh, there was there are flies in this room. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I would not doubt that. Yeah, but it, go ahead. I, you know, as a taxpayer, one of the things I expect from my public sector is that it provide good jobs and good opportunity, um, that it'd be a good employer. And I think uh, a majority of, of taxpayers would, would likewise agree. It doesn't make a lot of sense for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to um, be party to transactions that leave people earning very little and, and leave them doing things like having to go to the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank to, to get access to, to food because they can't make their, their bills. Um, they can't make ends meet. So I think this is what the governor said. And I think he said it from a perspective, you know, as a capitalist, which he is one. Um, and he talked about his own experience running his business when he was making this proposal and that his values, his view about how he should work and how his company should work was that wages would be would be fair would be high. And and that worked well for him. And, it, and he also had at his press conference, he had Lancaster Food Company. He had other small employers who do commit to both providing good products, good services, making profit, but also making sure that workers earn enough to get by. And I think that's a, that's, that's a good spirit. I think that's what taxpayers appreciate. So I think that's really what this issue is about. And it also, again, points us back to the need to talk about raising wages um, in the broader economy for all private sector. And that's what we'll talk about next. Alex, what were you going to say? Well, you know, I, I I think certainly Governor Wolf uh, was uh, ran a, a a very successful national corporation. Uh, so the notion that that uh, the governor can look at his experience as the CEO of a corporation and say, "Well, I didn't have to pay any of my workers below a certain amount," so. Every other employer in Pennsylvania, well, why can't they just operate the same way? I think if you ask, you know, the average uh, restaurant owner, I think it's you know it's important to note that over half of those earning the minimum wage in Pennsylvania work in food and drink establishments. You know, and, and these are these are businesses in particular whose profit margins I think are between one and three percent annually on on average. So the notion that 
it worked for his large national corporation and therefore every other business in Pennsylvania. Well, gosh, why can't they just operate under the same set of circumstances? Uh, you know, it, it, it clearly sort of doesn't, doesn't match up. We're getting a lot of phone calls. I want to get to those in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Let's take uh, some phone calls now. Bill in Lancaster wants to uh, bring in some history. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Uh, I've been listening to this since the 1960s, this argument, and it's always the same. Oh, my God, the world is coming to an end. Oh, there are people starving. And you know what? It doesn't happen. Back in 1968, the equivalent of today's value was just under $11 for the minimum wage. And the country has done well for the most part since then. And I'm just getting tired of listening to it. These two ought to grow up and come to some compromise that's reasonable. People cannot live on the current minimum wage, but we shouldn't go crazy and raise it out of sorts. $10 an hour comes to $25,000 a year, or uh, about, which is kind of reasonable for the lower end to exist on. All right, Bill, thank you very much for your call. I'd just like to point out, I'd love to grow up to, to $10.10 an hour. <laughs> but the point that Bill makes, though, is a, a good one in that this debate, not the growing up part, <laughs> um, <laughs> that this debate has gone on since the beginning of the minimum wage in the 1920s. And, you know, it has come, again, we hear about it every few years, and as you have pointed out, Mark, other states have done this. So, here's the, one of the bottom line questions, and I know you both have your numbers, but what has been the experience in the other states, the cities that have done this? Mark, I'll start with you. Thank you, um, Scott. Uh, well, as Alex has very artfully pointed out, you know, every other state, all 29 of them that have raised the minimum wage, are basically deserts. You know, there are no people, no businesses, no opportunity. They're just, they're just, they're just islands of of, of despair. There and, is sarcasm and, here, folks. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't come over in radio, so I'll point that. Out. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Uh, you know, um, uh, we're talking about you know states that, that have had an experience of raising the minimum wage, and researchers have done a lot of work. It's one of the most active areas of economics research. There are researchers on both sides of the debate, but basically, over time, the 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 um, um, employment impacts that folks worry the most about have, have fallen. They've gotten smaller as our empirical techniques have improved. There's still some economists who argue there are some small negative impacts, and the Independent Fiscal Office is arguing 30,000 jobs lost out of you know a, a million workers who see their wages rise. But in general, the experience has not been uh, one where states are a disadvantage economically. In fact, you know if you're looking for states that are performing poorly, Pennsylvania lags most of those other 29 states uh, in every term, not just um, overall job growth, but even looking at uh, you know job growth among restaurants and, and, and the kind of industries that would be impacted by minimum wage increase. So in general, the experience has not been the negative one that Alex is, is sort of worried very loudly about. Gentlemen, I wish we had more time. We'll, oh, uh, we'll uh, do this again sometime. And uh, it, it is something that the governor, if anything else, the governor has raised the issue again, and uh, we are talking about it, and maybe the legislature will be talking about it as well. But I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Mark Price, a labor economist with the Keystone Research Center, and Alex Halper, Director of Government Affairs with the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. Your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.